I know that was one of Brother Hale's favorite songs. They're all our favorites. All right, tonight we're still in Luke 23. I believe that last time we met and talked about Luke 23, well, we covered the thief on the cross. Uh, I don't know why we call him the thief. We should have called him the believer on the cross. His was a very, very distinguished conversion. It's so, so peculiar, so different, and so one of a kind that people that think they can put off their repentance until the last day when they're sick and dying and hope to gain heaven by that and use this as an excuse, they're, they're in trouble because it's a one-time conversion. There was a one-time Pentecost and they're always trying to make that over and over again. There's no such thing. There was only a one-time Acts of the Apostles. That's why it's called that. But they want healing, they want miracles, they want to see things instead of taking the gospel as it's brought in the scriptures to the sinner's heart, showing that sinner he's a lawbreaker, he's absolutely deserving of the wrath of God and the eternal punishment to him. They don't want to hear that, but that's what the Bible teaches. And then the way out is by believing on his son, the perfect substitute sacrifice. He's called a propitiation because it's the only sacrifice that God will admit. It's the only one God receives as payment for sin. And because it was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and him being God, he can give eternal life to as many as the Father gave him. He doesn't give it to any more than that because they're all in agreement. The Father agrees with the Son. The Son agrees with the Spirit. The Spirit agrees with the Son and the Father. They're all in perfect agreement that everyone's name who is written in the Lamb's book of life shall have eternal life. And they shall come to the Son. It's cut and dried. There's no other way. You can't start at the top of the ladder and work down. You've got to start at the bottom rung, which says you're a lost sinner. All right. Anyhow, this thief on the cross. When he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. If we never heard the Lord's answer, we wouldn't be sure of this man's heart. Was he playing upon something he had heard before or was he thinking of the sign that was above our Lord's head? You see, that didn't influence anybody else. Nobody else was influenced with that sign that said, this is the king of the Jews written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. But something worked in the heart of that thief. The only reason we know it was God working in his heart is because of the answer that the Lord gave him. Had the Lord not said this, we would have never known 
the condition of this man's heart because there are a lot of people want to be saved from hell. But when our Lord said, Verily I say unto thee, and that verily is like saying, Amen. This is it's over. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That was it. Now we know the heart of that thief. We know that he was truly repentant, truly lusting after the king. We usually use that word maliciously because the word lust has to do supposedly with looking at something you shouldn't have. But it goes the opposite way too. This thief lusted after the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, remember me. Just remember me. What a simple prayer. You know, you boys can pray that too. Anytime you bow your head and you feel your very vileness and sinfulness and this world so wicked and nothing, say, Lord, remember me. I'm just a nothing, a nobody, a sinner. But Lord, if you remember me, I'll have eternal life. Thou hast promised eternal life to those that remember you. Lord, I want to remember you so desperately bad. Lord, remember me. How is that a wonderful thing? When thou comest to thy kingdom. Well, the Lord didn't go to his kingdom. The kingdom is yet to come, but he immediately joined the kingdom of God, the family of God. And when our Lord said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. When our Lord dismissed his spirit, and we're going to see that in a minute in verse 46, so we're not going to go start there yet, but... He does say there, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His spirit went to the Father, went with the Father. His soul, that part of him that was part human, that went to hell. But this hell was paradise. It was the compartment in the center of the earth where all the souls of previous saints had gone because they couldn't go to heaven. They were held captive yet by their sins being unpaid. When our Lord Jesus Christ paid for the sins, then he could go down into paradise and empty it. And it seems like he stayed there for three days. And this thief, when he died, his soul went into the heart of the earth like any other saint's soul. And our Lord went there too. He's going to be with him in paradise. Our Lord doesn't even exalt himself above this thief. You notice that? He's going to be with me in paradise. Isn't it wonderful? Not well, I'll, I'll see you. Maybe you'll make it. Maybe you won't. I know for sure I'm going there. No, you're going to be there with me. And all of God's people look forward to being with Christ. 
That's what makes the rapture so great. I'm going to show you in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, how people try to to uh, explain that away. It, it's really hilarious to me. But uh, verse 17 says, And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's such a comforting thought. Comfort one another with these words. Now, the main theme today of so-called conservative preachers is to have the church go through the tribulation. They use all kinds of scriptures, but they very cleverly leave out key scriptures. For instance, this one in verse 11 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Picture yourself in the tribulation. You're a believer. In this tribulation, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. But then you read that you study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you. Now listen, that is not a scripture for the tribulation. There is no way that you could study to be quiet when all hell is breaking loose around you. So that's just one little minor scripture. And then the fact that when you look over in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, they have the Lord Jesus Christ coming back in vengeance, but at the same time, supposed to do this in First Thessalonians 4, raising the dead from the graves, giving them new bodies and changing believers, and catching them up into the air. They cannot put that together. It don't jive. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth with his saints and with his angels in vengeance, in flaming fire. How do the saints get to heaven in order to come back with the Lord Jesus Christ if he doesn't rapture the church out? They never get on that point. I say this is a resurrection. It is. Over in Revelation, it says at the end of the tribulation, this is the first resurrection. So they have to use that word resurrection and figure that because it's a resurrection and this is a resurrection, that the church has got to go through the tribulation. Well, that's the first resurrection of the tribulation saints. This is the, the resurrection of the church period. 
That's a different dispensation. At the end of this dispensation, God takes all the people out from all past dispensations at the same time. I can't see any difference between Jewish believers and Christian believers like us. The reason for it is, is that verse of scripture over there in, in Revelation that describes the New Jerusalem and it has the twelve apostles and it has the twelve tribes of Israel, all representative in the gates and in the foundation stones. So all of history from Adam to the end of this particular dispensation are all going to be raised together. And now those few that are left alive will be changed, but they are not going to go through the tribulation. Okay, now let's start our study tonight. Uh, verse 46. Verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now, I just got through explaining to you that his spirit went to the Father and his soul went down into the heart of the earth. How do we know that? Well, turn to the book of Acts just for a minute. Whenever you mention hell, you think of a terrible, terrible, actual burning place, and it will be from now on. But there was a time when it wasn't like that. One part of it was and one part of it wasn't. And the fact that God could preserve three Hebrew young men in a furnace that was so hot that it killed people that got close to it, and them could be in there walking around, really having the best time of their life because the Lord Jesus Christ was walking around in there with them. Four in the fire and they only threw in three. Isn't that amazing? Well, here's what happens in that part of hell where it's so hot. And yet the saints were very, very uh, comfortable. All right, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, talking about David, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell and neither his flesh did see corruption. His soul was in hell. His flesh was in the grave. His flesh could not see corruption. It was not like other flesh. It had not sinned. The justice of God did not have to turn it to rotting Karen. Sin is what causes death. Sin is the corruption in the human body. Our Lord Jesus Christ didn't corrupt. He couldn't. Where else does it say about hell? Verse 27, quoting the Old Testament, says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's in Psalm 16.10. You see, that was prophesied that our Lord was going to go down into hell. Now, 
What's the glorious ending of that? Well, turn over to the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. And here it gets good. Verse 8, Ephesians 4. Fourth chapter, Ephesians, verse 8. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, many of the Puritans even, and many people today, say that the captive that he led was Satan, and he chained him to his chariot with all that kind of foolishness. Satan is not chained to our Lord Jesus Christ and taken out of this world. Our Lord brought those who were held captive in the mid-earth paradise. He freed them, took him with them, and led them to heaven. Satan still has his access to heaven and earth at this time. Okay? How do we know that? Because it takes the 13th chapter of Revelation to tell us that there was war in heaven and Satan is kicked out. That's all future. Now, verse 9. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? You see, you and I can't reason that out. We can't. So how, how can you... You see, we're not spirit beings. We are held captive ourselves by our flesh and blood. Our minds can only penetrate so far into the workings of God. But here it says he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. That's where hell is. That's what we were reading about in Acts uh, Acts 3 or 2 and he that descended is, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things there's our Lord Jesus Christ ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high leading all the saints all the souls of saints through all the ages up there with him now, since that time, every saint that dies on earth, their soul is immediately conveyed to heaven. Angels come and escort them to heaven. Wouldn't you hate the thought of dying and then not knowing what to do, where to go, how to go? You don't have to worry about that. You've got an angel that's going to take you. There might be a band of angels come to take you. I don't know. But I'm going to read you a scripture that's going to show you that every person that's saved has a guardian angel. And that's in uh, Hebrews, the first chapter. Hebrews, the first chapter. I'll read with you 13 and 14 because it's 13 that mentions angels and then it continues to talk about angels in verse 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? You see, it's the angels that take and protect, transport, guide, lead the soul up to heaven when it dies, when the body dies. All right, that's 
what our Lord Jesus Christ did. His spirit went to the Father, but his soul went to the heart of the earth. Now, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. But now, is that all that he said? Well, you see, you, you got a little scripture in your Bible, too, I think. Look at Matthew 27, 54. Matthew 27, 54. You see, when you see those little notes down in your Bible giving you a, a reference, you know, somebody else has done your homework for you. 27.54 Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done they feared greatly saying truly this was the Son of God. Luke says certainly this was a righteous man. Now there's quite a bit of difference between the two but the meaning is the same. If he said he was the Son of God, he meant he was the only righteous man ever to walk on the face of the earth because he is the Son of God. Now, our scripture in Luke also just says, and Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit, and he doesn't, doesn't tell us anything else when he gave up the ghost. But in Matthew 27, starting with verse 50, we find some fantastic physical happenings to the earth. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent. So there's an earthquake. Is that scary? And whenever the earth quakes, people are frightened. An earthquake can be one of the most traumatic things ever a lot worse than a hurricane a bad earthquake just well I've never been in one I only read about them but they're terrible the earthquake but that's not the big thing that big thing is that veil being rent in twain you know that's the end of religion that's the end of organized religion the Jewish religion was the most perfect, organized, the best religion on the face of the earth that closed it down. That's the end of their sacrifices. The Holy of Holies was now opened. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Holy of Holies. There's no more secret religion. No more mystical religion. No more priests. Anytime you see a priest, you're seeing an actor, a false actor. There's no such thing as a priest anymore. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest. There's no such thing as holy places, holy water, holy anything. Except the scriptures, they're still called holy. God's holy word. The end of religion, how about that? So what does uh, some group of people do back in about the third century? They try to remake the Jewish religion. They try to make priests. They try to have offerings. 
they add a lot of other little doodads along with it, like nuns, wafers, holy water, forgiveness of sins by the men priests, the worship of a woman, all of those things trying to add to the old abolished Jewish religion. They don't have it anymore. Verse 52, And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. There's first fruits right there. When did they arise? Well, look at the next verse. And came out of the graves after his resurrection. Can you imagine? Here were a few, here were a few that beat everybody else down in paradise. These guys got their notices to move even before the Lord Jesus Christ went into paradise. I don't know how they were marshaled together, who called the conference and who chose who, but here was a group that was going to receive their resurrected bodies before anybody else and go into Jerusalem and to witness then to go back with our Lord Jesus Christ when he ascended into heaven. I don't know how long they stayed in Jerusalem. I don't tell you. Did they stay the whole 40 days that our Lord was here or not? I don't know. Don't know that. But did they cause a stir? And you remember the message I preached to you and said that they were the first preachers of the resurrection. They went and told about Christ being resurrected and themselves also. People just couldn't hardly believe it. Try to get hold of them? No, you couldn't catch them. They could disappear if they wanted to. They'd go anywhere they wanted to at any time. They had resurrected bodies. They were never caught up to by the Sanhedrin, the, the scribes, Pharisees, anybody. Nobody could do a thing to them. They couldn't catch them. And yet people were coming and being witness to them all over Jerusalem. Then that brings us to our verse 54. When a centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. That brings us back to Luke 23. Verse 47. So the centurion saw what was done. You see, Luke isn't telling you all about the earthquake and the graves of the saints being opened and many of them being raised again and the veil of the temple being rent. You don't, don't read that here. That's why all the four Gospels go together. They make up one complete story. But he did glorify God. Is it possible he was saved later on? Very possible. Who knows? There were a lot of people saved at Pentecost that were there. There had to be if 3,000 people were saved when Peter preached. A lot of them had to be there because Peter accused them. He said, you're the ones that crucified him. And it says they were pricked in their heart. It means their hearts were tore up. Their very inside being was actually bleeding from being pricked. They were sick. And the Lord made them so. And it's a most wonderful thing when the Lord pricks a heart and they must cry out, what must we do? What can we do? 
Well, let's look at verse 48. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, which things? Well, the earthquake, opening of graves, rocks rent. They had just previously witnessed three hours of absolute black darkness, pitch black darkness from 12 o'clock to 3, the most unlikely time ever for it to be dark. They saw that. Well, they smote their breasts and returned. The Lord was dealing with the people. When our Lord said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, a multitude were saved. Not all of them, but the Lord held back instant judgment on the people committing the most horrible crime ever. Even though it was planned by God, this was decided on by God before the world was created, that his son was to suffer this horrible, horrible death. Still and all, the people that did it were held accountable. It was their wicked hearts that wanted him killed. Verse 49, And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. All his acquaintance. Oh, brothers and sisters too? Well, of course, they're his acquaintances. A lot of folks are trying to tell you now, he didn't have any brothers and sisters. I want to tell you, the Bible says he did. The Bible names them. He don't name the sisters, but it names the brothers. Look over in Mark 6. Mark 6, verse 3. Here's what the neighbors are saying. The neighbors who lived across the street, down the street, on the next street, in the same little town of Nazareth, who knew Mary and Joseph very well, here's what they said. Is not this the carpenter talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? There's four brothers mentioned. Mary had four sons besides the Lord Jesus Christ. She had them by Joseph the carpenter. And that's not all. And are not his sisters here with us. And they were offended at him because they knew he was just like anybody else from a common ordinary family with at least six or seven children. Okay? So they are the, some of the acquaintances. All his acquaintance, it says. And the women that followed him from Galilee, there were some women that loved the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Mary Magdalene was one of them. James and John's mother was another one. Uh, and they all came down from Galilee because of the feast of the Passover. They stood afar off beholding these things. Look at Luke 2.41. Luke 2.41. Here's the reason. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And that means their families, the children, 
were trained to do the same thing. So that's the reason why they were there. Now look at Matthew 27, 55. Matthew 27, 55. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph. Now who's that? That's Mary. That's the mother of Christ. And there was the mother of Zebedee's children. Her name is not Mary. Okay, but her name uh, is uh, it's given in another one of the books. Okay, let's look at Mark fifteen forty seven. See if it tells us the name there. Mark fifteen forty seven. Uh, look at Mark 15, 40, for one thing. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene. Okay. Mary, the mother of James, the lesson of Joseph, and Salome. That is the mother of Zebedee's children. That was Salome. That was Mary's, I think it was Mary's cousin. No, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. Uh... There was a lot of Marys. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph. That's, that's Mary, the, the Lord's mother, and Salome. And then this other scripture, verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was led. That's still the mother of Christ and Mary Magdalene. Okay, let's get back to our scripture. Verse 50, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel indeed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. So if he was part possibly of the Sanhedrin. It says he didn't consent with the council. So he must have met with them at the time. We find out from John 19.38 something more about Joseph. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, some come out and some don't. Those who remain afraid of their religion or of something and don't come out, their end is very doubtful. But Joseph of Arimathea now is coming out. The fear of everybody is broken. Besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. So he was a secret disciple. Luke 23. But when he comes out, you know what's going to happen. He's going to be persecuted. 
He's going to lose his favor. He's going to lose his job, possibly his home and his family. If the family goes along with him, he's blessed. If the family doesn't go along with him and he has to flee, he's still blessed because he has the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't. But believe me, both him and Nicodemus suffered for their being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. He waited for the kingdom of God. What was that? In their eyes, it was for the Messiah to come and free Israel and people would then live under the Messiah and sin would be put down and it would be everything would grow good and animals would live together. There'd be no more bloodshedding. This was the happy utopia that they looked for in this kingdom of God. Well, verse 52 says, This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen, laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, which never man before was laid. And that day was a preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. Something about Joseph and Nicodemus. I want to tell you this now. You've got to think. They took the body down. I'm going to add Nicodemus because that's over in John. I'm going to show you that, that Nicodemus. Uh, John 19 and verse 39. You've got to read that first and hold your place. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices. So they were both there together. And it says in verse 53, and he took it down, and we know Nicodemus was there too, so they both had a hand in taking the body down from the cross. How did they do that? How did they get the hands off the cross when it was nailed in there? How did they get the feet loose? How would you do it? If you had a crowbar, it would be easy, huh? Did they have crowbars at that time? I don't know. Did they rip the flesh? I don't know. But this I do know. They both came in contact with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were the first and only ones to come in contact with the actual blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. They stood for him and they were washed in the blood. Now a lot of folks make a lot about the blood dripping here or dripping there or catching it in a basin and all those things which we don't know anything about. But I'll tell you what, Nicodemus and Joseph both saw and touched the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That blood that makes whiter than snow. Did they ever care after that? Whether the Jews persecuted him or not? We don't know. Don't know one single thing about Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus after that. 
but the Jews hated Christ. They hated Christians after that. And Paul tells you what a terrible hatred the Jewish religion had for Christians. He himself had them put to death. But Nicodemus and Joseph saw and felt the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most precious element ever on the face of the earth. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone where never man before was laid. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. He had this sepulcher and it must have been close to where the crucifixion was but nobody's ever found it. And that day was a preparation and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher, saw where he was buried, and how his body was laid. Witnesses that our Lord Jesus Christ died, was wrapped in linen, had a hundred pounds of spices wrapped in the linen with him in order to preserve the body so they thought needed. It didn't need it. And rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. That's all we have for tonight. We finished the chapter. And now we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ tonight doing all that. Suffering, dying, shedding his blood, and loving us. Loving those that the Father gave him back in eternity. How precious to think he thought about us as he commended his spirit to the Father and descended down into hell, knowing that one day there'd be a people at Truth Baptist Church that were going to celebrate that very death and bloodshedding of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to look in upon us by thy spirit and bless these folks who will partake tonight and take our minds back to Calvary where our Lord Jesus Christ took our place. And we ask you to bless those that will hear the message by tape also. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.